Hello, go ahead and find your seats again. We are continuing our study in the book of Mark, so if you have your Bible, please turn to the second chapter, and we'll pick up our study from where we have been. But before we do that, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us through your word, through your spirit, through your son. How grateful we are that you are not a God who remains hidden, just waiting for us to come and seek you, but you actually seek us. And so I pray tonight as we open your word that your spirit would be among us, that we would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you have. We pray that your spirit would remove every distraction from us, help us to be attentive to you, to your voice. Show us what you want us to see. And in all of this, I pray that you will make us more like Jesus. That is our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, one of the things I have learned about leadership is that one of the most foundational questions that every leader has to come to terms with and and understand is the proper balance between responsibility and authority. If I am given the responsibility of doing a certain task, if I'm given certain jobs to do, certain decisions to make, the question in my mind is, do I have the authority to actually do those things? That lesson came home to me very clearly when a number of years ago when I was much younger and stupider than I am now. We learn these things in bad ways. That's all I have to say. When somebody says, I have learned the lesson, what they're really meaning is I had a bad experience in my life someplace. Um, And yeah, I had a bad experience in my life about 20 years ago. Um, when we were living in China, and I had a particular position within our mission, um, a leadership position with our, with our team as the provincial leader in, among our, our, our mission team there in China. And we'd had a situation, a, a bit of a problem with, um, with a particular staff member, and something had been going on for a while. And in conversation with our country leader, he said to me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make this decision, and here's the the outcome. Here's the the process I would like for you to follow, and here we're going to take care of this situation. So in consultation with him, I followed through with the plan. Well, when the area, the Asia area, area director got wind of this whole thing, when he found out about this, he called us all together, and he said, well, guess what? It He said to me, it was not your authority to make that decision. And then he said to the country director, and you didn't have the authority to give him the authority to make that decision or to 
to do these particular tasks. He said, that was my authority to make that decision. It was not yours. Um, If I am given a task to do, that is a question now in my mind, do I have the authority to make the decisions in order to fulfill the task? It's a very important thing to think through. Last Monday morning at our staff meeting here with, with the pastors, the staff here at the church, we talked about that very thing because as for the next few months, as Stuart and Bronwyn are gone, here I am in a position of responsibility at the church as an interim pastor, but we very clearly stipulated, yeah, but here are some things that I cannot do that the senior pastor can do, but I cannot. I can't change the name of this church. You've already done that, and I can't do that. I can't rewrite the Constitution. You've already done that. The leaders of the church are doing that, but I can't do that, not as an interim pastor. So what level of authority do I have in order to fulfill the responsibilities in order to fulfill the tasks that are before me. That's a very important thing to think through. In a way, as we come to this particular passage in the book of Mark, I think that is one of the questions that Mark is is thinking through. That is one of the questions that comes to us as we look at this this particular account. Mark has been building this very strong case here at the beginning of his gospel. We've seen that throughout chapter 1, that Jesus has an authority that is different from the other authority figures that that these people are aware of. We see in chapter 1, verse 22, for example, that his teaching is filled with authority. He teaches them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, not as the other religious leaders of their time, that Jesus' authority as a teacher was beyond what they were used to from from these these other religious leaders. We see also that he has authority over the spiritual realm in, in verse 27, he casts out demons and the people say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. A level of authority that they had never seen before. We, we see in, in chapter 1 verse 32 that people brought to him all who, who were sick and oppressed by demons and he heals them. He is demonstrating, as we said last week, the authority of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, that everything that Jesus does is in some way a demonstration of the kingdom. And here he is in this passage today, chapter 2, I think taking one giant leap forward as he demonstrates Jesus' authority to forgive sins, not only to heal the body, but to heal a broken soul. But there is something much deeper in that act, and we will, we will look at that in a few minutes as the story unfolds, and that is the thing that gets him into trouble. That is the question. He has done this, but he, does he have the authority to do it? We'll see how it unfolds in the story. 
Let's look at our passage, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. As we have already seen in chapter 1, again and again, when, when Jesus is in town, the crowds show up. It is really a continuation of the, the stories that Mark begins this, this gospel with, of healing after healing, situation after situation, when Jesus teaches, people come in, in large groups. We note here at the beginning, just as in, in terms of the setting of the story itself, when he returned to Capernaum, important phrase, he, he returned to Capernaum after some days, because we have seen earlier on that Jesus was in Capernaum, in fact, he in verse 29, he, is, he has taught in the synagogue. He leaves the synagogue and he goes to the home of Simon and Andrew and James and John, which is in Capernaum. So he's in Capernaum. And then he says, let's go to the other towns in the area and preach because that's why I came. Not just to stay here in Capernaum and heal people and, and to teach in the synagogue. I came so that I could preach in other places as well. And so he goes out into these other places Verse 39, he went throughout Galilee, preaching in synagogues, casting out demons, and so on. And so Jesus has gone out to, to minister in other places as well. And so it says he, he returned to Capernaum, and it was reported that he was at home. Again, an important contextual uh, note right there, because Jesus, yes, he's from Nazareth, which is north of Capernaum, 
a little bit of a distance, and that was his hometown. But by now, Jesus has relocated. He has moved to Capernaum, and so this really is his base of ministry in Galilee now. This is where, this is where he lives. And so here he is at home. Whether it was his home or where he, whether he had taken up residence perhaps in Simon's home, in Peter's home, uh, we don't know exactly, but he's at home and there he is, and people come, and they crowd into the house where he is staying. Now, I don't know about you. I love people. I love being with people. But I also love to go home and close the door and be there alone with my wife or maybe just a few friends. I wouldn't be so happy if it was so crowded that people are just flooding into the house and there's no room for anybody else. I love you all, but at some point, can you all just go to your own houses? We all go to our own homes, but here they are following him to his house, and he's preaching the word to them. And so it is, it is packed with people inside, and the crowd is spilling out the door. And in the midst of all of this, four men come carrying a stretcher with their friend on it. I think a lot of this story is captured in the people in the story. And I want to look at each of these people that really takes part in this story because I think that's where the meaning of the story really lies. And so the first my attention is drawn to these four friends. We don't really know who they are. They're only identified as four friends. They came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Three things stand out in my mind from this passage about these four friends. First, we see in them that they come to Jesus with a tremendous sense of expectation and persistence. They, 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 they have this tremendous expectation. They, they expect Jesus to do something, and that, that expectation results in this persistence that simply won't take no for an answer. They, they had obviously heard the stories of Jesus, of Jesus preaching and, and Jesus healing these various people. They knew that Jesus had a reputation as a healer, and they were going to bring their friend to him. Um, and nothing is going to stop them. I have to wonder as I read this, what is, what is really preventing them? Is it, is it the crowds? Is it the size of the crowd? Or is it the fact that the crowds won't let them in? We'll get to that part of the story in a minute. But there's something in my mind that says it's not just that it's a crowded place. There's something about the nature of the crowd that says, no, we're not going to let you close to Jesus. We'll see how that unfolds in a minute. But Jesus, Mark tells us, is preaching the word to them. And as we noted last week, that word would be something about the kingdom of God. Because when Jesus is preaching, he is teaching people about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus preaches, the kingdom of God is drawing near. 
He sometimes says, the kingdom has come near to you, or you are not far from the kingdom. And so the kingdom has drawn near to them. And he explains the kingdom, and he invites people into the kingdom. And through the healings and these other things, he is demonstrating the power of the kingdom. And so when Jesus preaches, people draw near. Wounded people come near. Hurting people draw near. Sick people. And these friends are no different. They, they come with this tremendous expectation that Jesus is going to touch their friend. He is going to heal their friend. He is going to, in some way, meet this, this man's need. And so their expectation is demonstrated in their persistence to get to Jesus. They, they can't get in through the door. So they're going to find another way to get in. So the story says they, they dug a hole through the ceiling. You know, Sam and I were talking uh, just before the service tonight. He said to me, what is the craziest thing that has ever happened while you were preaching? I said, oh, I didn't, even, I didn't even miss a beat. You know what I'm going to say, don't you, honey? Um, I said it was the time when I was preaching and the building caught on fire and we had to evacuate in the middle of the sermon. Honestly, it happened. It really happened, yeah. Um, and I said to Sam, isn't it amazing, the things that happen while you're preaching, the things that go on in the room that none of you ever see, but we see all kinds of things. And sometimes our best lunch conversations after I preach, when Sue and I go, you know, we'll have lunch or something like that, and I'll say, oh, you know what happened in church this morning? She'll go, what happened in church this morning? I could tell you stories, but I'm not going to get distracted, but... <laughs> I've never had this. I have never had somebody dig a hole in the ceiling and drop somebody down in front of me. That hasn't happened. Close. Remember the time when the kid was using the bathroom in the back of the church and the door fell off? <laughs> and there was a big, loud crash in the back of the church. And the last thing I saw was two little arms sticking out from underneath the door. Can somebody help me? Anyway, things happen while you're preaching. And no, it's no less with Jesus. He's preaching, and things are happening. Things are going on. And so they dig their way through the root. But there's a second thing that I observe about these, these friends. Not only are they going to do whatever is necessary to get their friend to Jesus, the second thing I observe about them is their compassion for their friend. Their compassion for their friend. It's not overtly stated in the passage, but the common belief at this time is that, that there is a connection between sickness and a person's sin. That if you are experiencing this kind of sickness, it is the just punishment for the sin that you have, that you have committed. Sick people are unclean people, which gives us some idea about the response of the scribes, which we'll look at in a minute. Sick people are unclean, and therefore to touch a sick person doesn't make the sick person clean. It makes the clean person unclean. 
It makes the other person share in the sickness of this person. So by carrying their friend, these four friends have made themselves unclean. But their sense of compassion for their friend overrules their own concern for the appearance of their cleanness and their uncleanness. These friends would have been looked down on. They would have been declared unclean as well. But this doesn't matter to the friends. Their great concern was only to care for this person in need. Their, Their compassion for their friend was beyond their concern for themselves. And I do wonder if that was a part of the thinking of the crowd. We can't let this person in. He's unclean. He's only getting what he deserves. Their compassion was greater than their concern for themselves. I love this insight from from one writer. He says, compassion is conventionally defined as suffering with another person. That's literally what the word means, compassion, with with passion, with um, suffering with alongside another person. And we have no reason to alter that definition. But in its soteriological dimension, compassion means not only suffering with another person, it also means to suffer for another person. In compassion, one may carry the sin and suffering of others in such a way that they may be restored to wholeness precisely because their sin and suffering are born. As such, compassion is a priestly ministry of vicarious suffering. One's compassionate solidarity with the suffering of another becomes a redemptive solidarity. It is an entry into the depths of another person's lostness, displacement, and separation. And because of the journey of the compassionate one into the far country of another person's lostness, through compassion and suffering, a redemptive bond is established which can bring that other person home. Compassion as suffering for is supremely Jesus's ministry. As the compassionate one, he alone makes atonement for the sin of the world. However, as Christians find their life ever more deeply in him, one would expect that even this vicarious dimension of compassion would begin to come to expression in the ministry of the church. Here, compassion moves far beyond simply caring for people. It becomes, in and through Jesus Christ, a priestly ministry of redemption. I think that's exactly what we see in these friends. This not just suffering with, but carrying physically this this man's sickness and carrying him to Jesus. The third thing we observe in these friends is what Jesus sees, and that is in verse 5, he sees their faith. Jesus saw their faith, and he speaks to the paralytic. Notice that nothing at this point is said. 
No words have passed between Jesus and the friends. They don't say anything to, to Jesus. It is only through their actions that their faith is demonstrated. Bringing their friend to Jesus is a silent but a very dramatic plea for help. The fact that this is so blatant, it is so public, enhances the depth of their belief in Jesus' healing power. Only a tenacious faith would go to this much trouble. It's not the only time we see this kind of faith in actions. and In some ways, Mark is very much like James in, 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 the, in the book of James, the letter of James, who says that faith without works is dead. We see the same thing here in Mark chapter 5, which we'll look at in a few weeks. The, the woman who has been ill for so long, and, and she simply reaches out and touches Jesus' robe. No words. She doesn't ask for anything, but her actions demonstrate her faith. In other accounts, people break through barriers of crowds and social customs and against all odds in order to meet Jesus and in order to be touched by Jesus. And Jesus responds to the faith of these four friends. I remember years ago, Sue and I were going through a, a difficult circumstance. I don't remember exactly what it was, the, the, the details of it, but I do remember in the midst of that, she said to me one day, my faith is feeling weak right now. I need to borrow some of yours. I need you to kind of believe for both of us that God's going to do something here. The past three or four years, Sue and I have been walking through a very, very difficult season with some of our dear friends in the States. It's been a really tough time for them. And there are times when they will say to us, we just feel like quitting. We just feel like, is this worth it? Is it really worth it to just keep on trusting God that he's going to do something in the midst of this? Because there are times I just feel like walking away from it. And they say, sometimes the only thing that keeps us in the battle, keeps us faithful, is knowing you are standing with us and you're praying with us. And that gives us the strength we need to keep on going, to keep on trusting, to keep on believing. And I think that's, that's part of what these four friends represent for this paralytic. They are going to trust Jesus for this young man. And Jesus sees their faith, and he acts. And so Jesus looks at the paralytic. He's the second person we want to look at here in this story. He looks at the paralytic lying on the mat in front of him. And from the very first two words, we hear nothing but tenderness, acceptance, intimacy coming from Jesus we learn something very important about Jesus from this passage, that he is able to look beyond the surface and into the very heart of people. That comes throughout this passage. 
And so we have to understand that he is looking at the heart of this paralytic. And as I read this story again and again, I thought, what does he see as he looks at this young man? What does he see? He looks beyond the circumstances. He looks at the very heart of him. And I am convinced that there is a story here. Mark isn't the type of writer to go into a lot of details. What we see in the book of Mark is that he gets through things fairly quickly. He gives us a lot of, a lot of accounts, a lot of things, and things happen quickly. They happen immediately, and that's one of his favorite words. And immediately this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But what we don't get in Mark is a lot of the detail behind the story. And that's the case here. And it makes me wonder, so what's the story behind the story? Because in this, in this time, it was believed, as I said, that sin was the result of a person's sin. There was often this connection between the, 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 the illness, the difficulty of your life, whatever that was, and the sin that you had committed. You are experiencing the deserved punishment for your lifestyle, whatever that is. So what's this man's story? Perhaps it's a story that is well-known throughout Capernaum. Perhaps the people knew what this man's story was. After all, Capernaum is a small town. It's not a big place. I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town. I did for six years of my life, and I thought, I never want to do that again. Gossip spreads faster than an Australian bushfire, and it leaves a lot more damage. I've seen that again and again and again. And what was the gossip about this young man? It makes me wonder. Maybe that's why the crowd wanted to keep him outside. Was it the deserved result of a, a flagrant lifestyle? Was this, the, was this the result of a stupid night out with the boys? Was it the unfortunate consequence of a bad decision or a momentary lapse of judgment? We don't know. But you know what? Jesus did. He knew. And he knew all the raging emotions that were running through this man's mind and his heart. His legs couldn't feel, but he knew that this young man was lying there agonizing in pain and shame and guilt, haunted by a conscience and memories that wouldn't go away. He was imprisoned probably by his own guilt. And so Jesus' first words my son. I think that suddenly gave him a hope that he had never felt before. Someone could look beyond his failure. Someone could look beyond what he was experiencing. And somebody could accept him. And not only accept him, but perform an even greater healing here, and that was the brokenness of his own soul. Somebody could reach into that place and touch the part of him that was even more wounded than the legs that wouldn't work. 
And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Imagine in that moment the release of shame, the release of guilt, the healing of a wounded conscience, the release of the torment of the memories that that he'd been living with, the the sickness of his soul was cured. The the people could see the brokenness of his body, but but Jesus looks beyond the beyond the outward condition into the into the deeper parts of him. And he says, I know about the greater pain that is tormenting you. Let me take care of that. When we lived in China, for a number of years, we worked with a medical project. And one of the things that I learned working so, so closely with medical doctors for, for uh, nine years of my life was that there's a big difference between a symptom and a disease. A symptom makes my life uncomfortable. I feel a pain. I have a headache. I'm, I'm uncomfortable, and I want to feel better. A symptom makes me uncomfortable. It will threaten my comfort, but a disease will threaten my life. And the doctors know how to go beyond the symptom. Well, this is what you see here. And then they begin to ask questions. Well, do you have this? And how, do you, how does this feel? And have you ever experienced this? And then they put these, these symptoms together, four, five, six, seven, eight symptoms, and they say, yeah, it points to something much, much deeper. You think you just have this, but let me tell you, this is actually what's going on. Well, that's kind of what Jesus does here. He looks at the man and says, yeah, you, you have a problem with your legs. But there's something much, much deeper, and that's the thing that we really need to deal with here. I know about the greater pain that's tormenting you. Let me heal that. It's one thing to walk on new legs, but, but it, is much, it is much greater to live fully free, free with a healed soul. The rest of the restoration of his body was only the icing on the cake. And one thing was undeniable here. The goodness and the acceptance of Jesus is on full display for everybody to see. Over my years of ministry, I have discovered that virtually every single person, I don't think there's any exception to this, every person has a story. Like this young paralytic, most of us have an episode from our past that we really wish wasn't part of our biography. That's a chapter I'd rather people didn't see. It's a chapter I'd rather not even was a part of my life. Time and time again, I have heard those stories from people who cannot get past the the shame and the guilt The weight of that memory becomes an identity, becomes a barrier between us and God. And we often, how many times people have come into my office and said, I I have committed a sin that God can't forgive. Usually what they're saying to me is, I can't forgive myself. Therefore, it becomes a barrier between us and God. But that barrier is imposed by us, not by God. 
God says, let me take that barrier down. God knows each of our stories, and in the face of Jesus, he smiles at us lying on that mat, and he says, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. Be free from the self-imposed paralysis of your failure, whatever that is. But there are undoubtedly people here who have come for the purpose not of receiving that message. They hear this and they simply don't like it. They have come for the purpose of checking Jesus out. They are the skeptics. They are the cynics. And I wonder what the scribes and Pharisees are thinking as they sit in this crowd. They, we see them in verse 6. They, they are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Self-appointed critics, discerners of sound doctrine and appropriate actions, these are the legalistic religious rulers of the day who simply are there to make sure that everything is done strictly by the book. Keep the rules. Do it exactly right. Do it this way. This is the prescribed way. Don't get out of line. Don't get out of order. This is the way it's done. These were people who looked for offense. And I'm sure that that's exactly why they were there. They were looking for offense. This passage begins a series of charges that are leveled against Jesus. And we'll look at those in coming weeks here in chapter 2 and and chapter 3. Jesus is questioned about why he eats with sinners and why he doesn't fast as other people do and criticism about healing on the Sabbath and so on and so forth. But, but of all the criticisms, none is more serious than this one because the charge of blasphemy calls for the death penalty. Interesting, these leaders wouldn't bring that charge out yet, but they tucked it away. You can you can be sure they made a note of that. They wrote that down and they put it in the Jesus file. We'll bring that out at the right time. It comes out, Mark chapter 16, verse 64. That long later, they bring that back out and they bring that charge against him. It's perplexing, to be honest, to see how people respond to to God's generosity. We expect God to act as we would. And so often we simply cannot grasp that he is generous, he is receptive, he is so open to us. We can stumble over God's gentleness and God's open-heartedness. This expression of concern and compassion was, was beyond the comprehension of these keepers of the law. What were these scribes thinking as they looked at this young man? Maybe they knew his story. May, it didn't matter, though, because as we said, sickness is a, often regarded as a punishment for sin. And perhaps as he's lying there, they think, well, he's just getting what he deserves. He's paying the price for his stupidity, his lifestyle, his sin. But no doubt they looked much like the dutiful young, older brother in the prodigal son who 
They did everything they were supposed to do. Looking down on the younger brother, always following the rules and expecting to be rewarded for their obedience. To be honest, brothers and sisters, I shudder to think of the times over my lifetime, my years of ministry, how many people have been kept out of the kingdom because of my attitude toward them and their sin. Are we a barrier by our attitudes, the way we treat other people? Or are we like the friends? No, let's bring them to Jesus. I'm sure their thoughts are running much deeper than the questions about Jesus' ability to forgive sins. You see, there's something much greater at stake here. Jesus' declaration that this man's sins are forgiven is a statement that this young man is being publicly welcomed into God's kingdom. This is what would bring some of the strongest criticism to Jesus and his ministry. And suddenly all those people that the scribes and Pharisees would say are out of the kingdom, Jesus is now welcoming them into the kingdom. Jesus is offering the kingdom to those that they would see as the least qualified, the unqualified. These people are out of the kingdom. And Jesus is suddenly saying, who is in the kingdom? Who is not in the kingdom? And he's completely rewriting the rules. Look at the Beatitudes sometimes with that in mind. Who is Jesus saying is the blessed? The blessed people are those that all of the religious leaders are saying are the unblessed. They are outside the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, blessed are you. And you are welcome into the kingdom. This would completely unsettle those who to this point had been writing all the rules. And Jesus says, no, welcome into my kingdom. What about their own smugness at their own sinlessness? Jesus' forgiveness of the young man's sin no doubt plunged them into questioning about their own spiritual condition. At the very least, the state of their own hearts is now laid bare as Jesus pierces into those places that only God can see. It's obvious to them that Jesus is seeing into places that they can't see. You ever noticed in this passage how much is unspoken? There's so few words in this passage, yet Jesus knows it all. The paralytic and his friends never asked for healing, and there was never any open confession of the sin. But Jesus sees their faith based on their actions, and he, he responds in, in, in loving, healing kindness. The scribes and Pharisees question in their hearts, and, and Jesus knows it all. Clearly, Jesus takes on the characteristic of God described in the Old Testament that, he, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God is able to look at the heart and that's where he judges us. He sees what is in the heart of the friends, the paralytic, the scribes, the Pharisees, and he responds to each person according to that heart belief or disbelief. So Jesus says to this young man, pick up your bed. 
go home. And the young man simply stands up. He rolls up his mat. And he walks out the door. The crowd, of course, is amazed. The scribes make their notes. And Jesus has just opened the kingdom doors a little wider. And he has welcomed a sinner home. Let's pray. Reflect for a moment. Where are you in that story? Probably we see ourselves a little bit in each of these people. The paralytic. The friends. The scribes. Where are we? Where are you? I'm convinced that Jesus has a word for each of us through the experience of each of these people. Father, thank you for this story. And I pray by the power of the Spirit that you would show us where we fit. What are you teaching us? What is that sin that has become an identity? Help us to give that to you and to rise up and to walk in newness of life. Who are the friends that we should bring to you to intercede on behalf of? To enter into their suffering and, and bear that with them. And forgive us, Father, for even our own judgment, our skepticism, our cynicism. Help us to release that. Help us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.